Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 5th. Today, how an untested app stumbled in Iowa, using sex ed to teach consent, and the vote to acquit the president. So just as a heads up, mm-hmm. this is the difficulty. Shadow is not the name of the app that they used. Okay. Yeah, there's, it, it's, it's, oh God, it has like a special name. It's like Tony Rom is a senior tech policy reporter at The Post. And he says that he did not expect that the biggest story to come out of the Iowa caucuses would be a tech story. The caucus is a pretty unique setting. It's not like showing up at the polls and checking off the person that you want for the presidency. It's people in gymnasiums, in schools, standing up for the candidates that they literally want to see nominated uh, on behalf of the Democratic Party. And so counting that and relaying that back to one source isn't always easy, especially when you're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of precincts scattered across an entire state. So what essentially Iowa Democrats realized was that they needed a faster, more efficient way to do that sort of results tabulation. And it had to be a method that was safe against any sorts of foreign or domestic election meddling. So it had to be a secure solution as well. And so what we ultimately got was the app that Iowa Democrats had deployed for the caucus on Monday night. And I think even Democrats would acknowledge it was a total unmitigated disaster for them. Was that like? So theoretically, in the past, when people have been reporting the results from voting, they would, I guess, just pick up the phone and call to the Democratic headquarters in Iowa. And that was what would get complicated. And so with this app, theoretically, you were supposed to be able to just like punch in the numbers that were tabulated from what people were seeing in each precinct. Right. And there was a whole long process on the part of Democrats, both national and in Iowa, to try to figure out a tech solution that would work for the state. It was this tortured thing that went on for a number of months before they ultimately ended up with the app that was put into place on Monday. And all that being said, Iowa Democrats had in place a phone system so that people could call in if they were having trouble with the app or perhaps They weren't trained on it. But it turns out that there were a number of technical troubles that hamstrung the app, that hamstrung reporting on Monday night. The phone lines ultimately got clogged. And what you ended up with was this bottleneck that took about 24 hours to resolve. So how much do we know about what actually went wrong with the app and why it didn't work? There were essentially two buckets of things that went wrong. The first had to do with the service itself. There seems to have been some sort of coding error on the back end that essentially made it hard for the company and for Iowa Democrats to fully tabulate the results and to do so in an accurate and swift way. But perhaps just as, if not more important than that, was the actual implementation of this on the ground. There were lots of criticisms coming from people in Iowa that they had not been sufficiently trained on it. There wasn't enough time to really learn how the system 
system works, that they couldn't download it on their phones or they couldn't log into it, even in the days before voters turned out for the Iowa caucus. And so it led to this perfect storm where the app wasn't working and people didn't know how to work it, even if it did work. So, you know, I think that it was sort of a wake up call for a lot of Democrats as to what they need to do in the future if they look to implement these sorts of technology solutions. So the company that developed this app is called Shadow. What have they said about this debacle? Shadow has admitted that something definitely went wrong. They have admitted that there were coding troubles on the back end that caused the delays that we saw on Monday night. In addition to apologizing, they said that they did not have any evidence that the vote itself had been compromised. They have no doubt about the legitimacy of the election itself. There's always been this issue with respect to cybersecurity when it comes to voting. Everything from the machines you use to select the candidate that you won for president right up to the apps that we saw deployed for registering those results. And there's an entire ecosystem, an entire business around providing those solutions to individual campaigns so that they can mobilize voters and to the states and local precincts that you know actually put the machinations of voting into action. And so, you know, I, I think with, with respect to Shadow, what it also suggests is a desire on the part of Democrats to really improve their digital game. There has been so much money spent or invested in the years since Donald Trump was elected president to help Democrats find a new digital edge over Republicans. There, there was just this theory that they had gotten completely beaten uh, by Republicans, particularly on social media, that they needed to invest in their own sort of more powerful, more aggressive ecosystem. And that's why you see companies like Shadow coming in to existence and newly being embraced by old school Democratic Party infrastructure. So do we know if this specific app or other apps made by Shadow are going to be used for other caucuses or other primaries? So we do know that others had been talking to Shadow about implementing their technology. And one that has come up is the Nevada Democratic Party, which also has a caucus. Nevada has come out, though, and said, we're not going to use it. We're not using this stuff. We have concerns about it. There's no chance that we're going to have the same problems here that Iowa had just on Monday. You have these private companies developing these apps, and the apps mess up during critical times, like during the Iowa caucuses. It contributes to this idea that maybe the integrity of our elections can be questioned, that it just makes it seem like the process isn't transparent or the process isn't necessarily accurate, even if in this specific instance, there is every confidence that the actual results that have come out are accurate results. Yeah, it creates doubt. It makes people more reluctant to embrace this technology, both the campaigns and the parties that put it into place, and then the people who ultimately have to use it at the end of the day. You know, it's one thing for us to use Facebook, and when we go to upload a photo, it doesn't work, and we get kind of annoyed, and maybe we try again later. But the stakes are so much different with respect to voting. And so now you have a lot of officials out there saying, well, this is exactly why we don't put these kinds of tech solutions into place in the context of democracy. Tony, thank you so much. Thanks. Tony Rahm reports on tech policy for The Post. What are some ways a person can verbally say no? Of course, say no, right? But some other ways you came up with? Back in 2018, just months into the Me Too movement, months after the Harvey Weinstein story came out, Maryland passed a law requiring that age-appropriate lessons on consent be a part of the health curriculum for students. These lessons focus on our interpersonal communication skill, 
I'm Samantha Schmidt, and I write about gender and family issues. I feel like there's been a ton of momentum around how do we educate young kids, and particularly boys, teenage boys and even younger boys, about what consent means. And I feel like there have been books written about this in the last two years, particularly after the Kavanaugh hearings. There was a lot of conversation about how do we reshape the way we talk about sex with our kids. And as more and more states started passing laws about uh, consent education, I kept thinking, what does this actually look like in the classroom? Like, How do we actually talk about this with middle schoolers in a way that's not awkward and in a way that will actually resonate with them. So I've, for months and months, have been trying to get access to a class, which is not that easy because, you know, it's difficult to let a reporter into a classroom with a bunch of kids talking about sex. I can imagine <laughs> that they want to keep it somewhat of a, of a safe space. Yeah, yeah. Unambiguous means that the answer can't be misinterpreted. In the video... I remember when I was in middle school when we started to do sex ed and like everyone knew what day was going to be the day where we like have the talk and watch the video of somebody giving birth. And there was this energy of nervousness and awkwardness, but also like a little bit of excitement around it. Was that what you felt when you were seeing these kids going into this class for the first day? All right, we are rotating this way. Definitely. I'm sure it didn't help having a stranger in the class as well, listening in on the conversations. But the teacher said that she had noticed there was a little bit of, there were some nerves in the you know day before as she was kind of warning them. And she emailed the parents to remind them that this was coming. This is going to be on the on the schedule for the coming week. And uh, you could tell in some of the conversations, you know, you could hear the chuckles. <laughs> And you could sense some of the, you know, classic middle school awkwardness that comes with talking about sex ed. And what were your first impressions of these middle schoolers? Like, do they seem excited to actually dive into these issues? It just reminds you how young they are. I mean, you walk in and they're in mostly sweatpants. This is so not in their conversations, you know, and they're, I felt like, it was starting from a very foundational level. You know, I wasn't sure. I was, it's been a while since I've been in middle school. I couldn't really remember, you know, what was going through my brain as a 13-year-old girl. But they started with just the most foundational questions, like, what is a boundary? And even that was a process of kind of getting it out of the students because they were answering with, like, one-word answers. And you could tell that the teacher was really trying to start to get them to open up and, and to think about these things for the first time. What did they say about that to that question of what is a boundary? The little box down here in the corner asks you to list examples of boundaries. What is a boundary? It's a limit, you know, something that stops you. Or then the teacher asked, you know, a limit set by whom? The girl answers, by yourself. And so it's really starting by those kind of, with those early foundational ideas of boundaries. And she starts asking about, do any of you have any uh, siblings? Do you allow your siblings to just walk into your bedroom? Yes. And everyone starts saying, oh, yeah, my sister does that all the time. Or I have a two-year-old sister, so, you know, I can't really, you know, stop her. And you get people talking about the things that irk them, about people that kind of step into their space when they don't want them. And then how does that start to veer into the direction of talking about dating or kissing or sex or how does she broach that? She starts by putting the definition out there and saying, this is what consent is. This is how you can tell somebody that these are your boundaries. She breaks it down by each part. She explains that 
Consent is something that is ongoing, and it can be withdrawn at any point. She explains, you know, has anyone ever given a hug or been given a hug, and it lasted just a bit too long? You know, just because you consented to that hug in the beginning doesn't mean you have to stay in that hug. So you can at any point say, I've had enough. I, I'm done here. I want to stop hugging. And she never really takes the conversation to sex. It is very much focused on relationships and touching and eventually kind of makes its way to kissing. And you can see that in the video clips that she plays. She starts with like a video clip that's just about, you know, consent for kids. No one else is entitled to tell you what to do with your body. Then she plays a video I really liked that I guess has been around for a while. And it's about, you know, these two, this boy and this girl that he's asking her if she wants to go play basketball. She's, you know, she says yes or no. She asks him if, you know, he wants to go play video games. It's kind of just hanging out as friends. And then in the last scene, he asks her if she wants to kiss. And she says, yeah, and they kiss. And that's it. <laughs> and then and then the teacher, the first thing she asked was, I always get this, you know, does anyone think, Oh, but it ruins the moment. And, you know, you hear all these kids just chuckling and saying, raising their hands, saying, yeah, it kind of ruins the moment. And the teacher says— the, It ruins the moment, the fact that that he'd asked to kiss her rather than just doing it. Yeah. And the, the teacher said, I don't think it ruins the moment because think about what could have happened. Maybe he kisses her and she wanted it and it's fine and, you know, they keep going on with their day. But maybe she didn't want it. And then it ruins the relationship. That really kills the moment. But even in that moment, like on the screen in the PowerPoint, it's a photo of SpongeBob SquarePants, like cringing. (laughs) (laughs) So she's really kind of acknowledging that, like, yeah, this is kind of awkward. And is this something that other other school districts, other counties and other parts of the country that they're considering adding to their curriculum as well? Yes. Actually, when I when I first started looking into this was around the time when Maryland passed a law two years ago. And even a year later, at the time when Maryland passed its bill, only about 10 or 11 states and the District of Columbia included references to consent or healthy relationships or sexual assault in their sex ed standards. And only at the time, only 24 states mandated sexual education at all. That's still about half the country does not require it for students. But in the year or two since, at least 10 other states have passed laws adding language about consent or healthy relationships to the standards, including Virginia, Colorado, and Illinois. There are some states that are in this coming legislative session considering bills. So it definitely seems to be a growing movement. And a lot of that actually has been propelled by student activists and a lot of newly elected female lawmakers in different states that have been pushing bills about this. So there seems to be some some growing momentum. And what do you think that says about what it means to be a teenager right now? I think that there's a growing understanding that politics aside, there's this conversation happening right now about how can we start this before kids are even sexually active? Like why is it that we wait until college freshman orientation sessions to talk about sexual assault? Why can't we get this started so much earlier and make it just a part of the way we raise our kids? And that way, it's not about how do we prevent sexual assault, it's how do you as a a teenager make sure that you're in control of your body? And it's just going to make their experiences when they do actually become sexually active a lot more enjoyable and a lot clearer to them. And And a lot safer. And a lot safer, definitely. Sam Schmidt covers family and gender issues for The Post. 
On Wednesday afternoon, the Senate voted to acquit the president of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The last couple weeks of the Senate trial have been pretty predictable, and it's been clear for a while that Trump would be acquitted. But there was one surprise on Wednesday. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. Senator Mitt Romney. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. Today, Mitt Romney, the junior senator from Utah, came to the Senate floor to announce his decision to vote to convict President Trump and remove him from office on an article of impeachment. Mike DeBonis is a Congress reporter for The Post. It was just a stunning moment. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. It really was an extremely emotionally freighted moment to, to witness. The president's purpose was personal and political. Accordingly, the president is guilty of an appalling abuse of public trust. What he did was not perfect. No, it was a flagrant assault on our electoral rights, our national security, and our fundamental values. Corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. Were I to ignore the evidence that has been presented and disregard what I believe my oath and the Constitution demands of me for the sake of a partisan end, it would, I fear, expose my character to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. Is it going to change anything? In a word, no. But for months since December, Republicans have said they've, you know, this is a partisan endeavor. But right now, the fact that there's a Republican vote to convict the president sort of changes the whole feel of, of the end game here for Republicans. This, it sort of takes a bit of the, the triumphant note out of uh, the end game here. As it is with each senator, my vote is an act of conviction. We've come to different conclusions, fellow senators, but I trust we have all followed the dictates of our conscience. I acknowledge that my verdict will not remove the president from office, but irrespective of these things, with my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability, believing that my country expected it of me. I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the president did was wrong, grievously wrong. Mike DeBonis is a Congress reporter for The Post. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives. On Wednesday afternoon, the senators voted 52 to 48 to acquit President Trump on the charge of abusive power. They voted 53 to 47 along party lines to acquit on the charge of obstruction of Congress. 
Mitt Romney was the only Republican that voted to convict the president on the charge of abuse of power. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be out on Thursday and Friday, but Caroline Kitchener from The Lily will be filling in as host. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 